welcome to Millennial Musings, our second Halloween special. I am Isabella. And I'm Gladys. And yeah, last time, last week was part one, where we discussed a couple of frogging cases. Go listen to that one if you haven't yet. Um, And today we will dive into the question that we asked ourselves, which is, which true crime case shocked you? If you're here for, if you want some more, I don't know, crime stories, then stay here. And if not, then next week we'll be back with our shit, I'm a woman theme. Yes, exactly. But just a warning already, get ready for some craziness today. Because like we said, we both listen to true crime quite a lot. And we chose the ones that did really shock us. So, or like intrigue us. So yeah. Um, Before we get into this, Gladys, how how was the Comic Con? Because you said you went to Comic Con this weekend. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's it's now Sunday morning when we're recording this. I'm very tired as well. So <laughs> forgive me if I'm a bit of a mess this episode, but I will, I'll try my best. Um, but no, we went to, yes, to Comic-Con yesterday and it was lovely. I love me a good Comic-Con. Um, I mean, I've been in Belgium, but this was my first time in London and it's just really nice. My favorite thing is like the independent artists who have their stalls and everything. It's just really nice to see the work that they create and I bought some nice things another tote bag like I don't have 150 already and then uh, like a couple of very nice prints like a Schitt's Creek print and everything that will look very nice on my walls so uh yeah I loved it it was great and also just you know watching people seeing how they dress up and everything some people go all out and it's very impressive so um yeah that was great how was your Saturday? I mean, I know how it was, so but I'll, I'll ask anyway for the people at home. That sounds great with the Comic Con, though. I really want to go to one. I've never been, and I really, really want to go. Oh, you can join us in May. There's another one in May. Is it? Is it in London as well? Yeah, it's every it's twice a year, and apparently the one in May is even nicer because the weather's nice and people are like outside doing things and all of that. So yes, yeah. I will join you. This sounds amazing. Thank you. Um, but yes, my Saturday was unbelievable because I went to visit my future puppy. We went to the woman who has the puppies and we got to play with all well, we were meant to play with all of them, but they were all snoozing like there was no tomorrow. They were not you could not wake him up. <laughs> um, we even let their mom in to lick them awake, but it didn't work. Um, but they were adorable we chose our puppy and yeah we have a new team member in our podcast <laughs> podcast yeah. what do you say podcast team um, yeah. a new addition and we will introduce her to you when once she arrived because she will get working the moment she will arrive here <laughs> yeah we're using her for views and listens immediately <laughs> yes she's gonna be, be the bait no she's adorable it was really cute i did wake her up in the end just to like see her awake uh we were allowed to she didn't bother much she just left and went to her crate and slept so that's a good sign she's a good sleeper we need a good sleeper in this house so <laughs> the pictures did look very very cute yeah. Oh my God. It was too much. It was, it was, it was an overload. My endorphins spiked so much yesterday. They're probably gone today. But this, if, if not that, the, the two cases will take all my endorphins away anyway. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah. Speaking of, <laughs> this will yeah, it will probably be quite well, I don't know if it will be long, but we will of course have a bit of a discussion afterwards as well. So let's maybe just get right into it. Um, I can't believe I can't believe I have to be talking for so long. <laughs> it's so weird with us because like we constantly have a conversation. So even though we maybe if you add everything up, we do talk a lot. But when it's like I noticed it last last week as well, and it's like when you actually need to tell a story, you just need to talk nonstop. Yeah, and it's different things you need to watch out for. Like when I was editing it, and even after editing, when I just listened to it once it went live, I realized, oh my god, I'm saying um so many times. So sorry for that. I will watch out. <laughs> or like I need to catch breath. Like while editing, I had to cut cut, cut out how often I was like, let me just get a breather. <laughs> Yeah, I, just, I don't know. It, it feels very different when you need to tell, like, share something that you've prepared. I don't know. It feels like, oh, I'm performing in a way now, you know. Um, so, yeah, but I'll, I'll do my very best. I do have to say this case is not, I mean, of course, it's not nice what happens, but it's not necessarily gory or anything. It's not graphic, um, but I've heard that yours will be a bit more of that. So that's maybe good. Maybe it's good that we have a little bit of a mix. So I will start with the less graphic one then. Um, it's more so like a murder mystery. It is sounds, kind of, it is yeah. a murder mystery. Yeah, I would say so. So um, I am doing a Belgian case. Not the one every Belgian person is thinking of now. <laughs> Not that one. I would need about five episodes and also I don't want to get into that. But um, one that everyone in Flanders, I think, definitely knows. Although it also got some international attention, apparently, because this case has everything. It's a love triangle. It's, you know, it's very intriguing. It is a little bit of a mystery. So, uh, and also it had to be a Belgian case because for such a small country, there's a lot of shenanigans going on. <laughs> so I do have to say um, that I based my research on uh, a documentary that I watched on this, like a two-parter um, that I can share. We'll put it in the in the show notes if that's, is that how, how you say that? Show notes? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Um, and then also my probably my favorite podcast uh it's Flemish so yeah if you're if you don't understand Dutch can't really listen to it um it's called the Volkshuri and yeah I really like it it's also the I think it's maybe even the first true crime podcast maybe even the first podcast that I started listening to so um yes Big shout out to them because they did an, a wonderful job. But I also, I didn't want to tell the story in exactly the same way because as I was listening and taking notes, I was like, oh my God, they do this so well and their structure is so great. But I didn't just want to give a translated version of it. So I kind of changed things and added things from the documentary and then left things out and, you know, so whatever. Um, so if you've already if you know this case or if you've already listened to it, then um, I will still try to make it interesting. Our story today starts where so many tragedies start, with a love triangle. So there are three main characters here, and by the end of the episode, one of them will be dead, one will be in prison, one will be left, and may have gotten away with murder. Who knows? We'll see. This is already so good. 
that's the best part, I think. <laughs> so the main location for our story today is Parachute Club Zwerzbech. Now, of course, the names and everything might be a little bit of a challenge, so I'll try to make them as accessible as possible for non-Dutch speakers, okay? So this is a parachute club. The name doesn't really matter. And people go there during weekends, most of the time during weekends, and they stay over. That's important. So often they go there on like a Saturday and then they stay until Sunday because if the weather's nice, they want to get as many jumps in as possible, sometimes even 10 a day, which was very surprising to me. I thought it took a very long time to, I don't know, perform a jump or whatever. Um, but apparently, no, sometimes they jump up to 10 times a day. Uh, so yeah, if the weather's really nice, then they like to just get the most out of the weekend as possible. So then most people stay there. There's, like I said, three main characters here. The first one, his name is Marcel. Marcel Somers in Dutch. So Marcel, he's a Dutch guy, but he joins the parachute club in Flanders, which isn't that far away. I think it's, yeah, it's fine. It's Belgium. It's not that big. So um, he joins that club and he, the interesting thing about him is that he has a relationship with two women in the club. So... The first person you need to know about is Els van Doren. We will call her Els Vidi. Okay. Els is a very common first name in Flanders. So common, in fact, that the other main character is also called Els. <laughs> but we'll call this one Els Vidi and we'll give the other one a nickname because they did that as well, because it was very confusing to them as well. So Els Vidi, she is 37 years old and she's married to Jan, another very Dutch name. <laughs> they have two children. Also, interestingly, we both worked with, <laughs> with people with these I names. was just going to say, I maybe know five Dutch Flemish people and that's all their names. <laughs> two of which are Els and Jan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so, and then there's me, which is <laughs> not a common name at all. <laughs> okay, so uh, she's married to Jan. They have two children. Her husband actually used to be a member of the parachute club as well, but he wasn't as passionate as his wife and he ended up leaving. Together, they own a jewelry store. And so, like I said, Else often stays over at the club because it's also not super close to where they live. So she just stays there over the weekend and they kind of stay camping there like they sleep in sleeping bags which would not be for me but okay <laughs> to do that every weekend hell no but so she's basically there every weekend which is of course how she met Marcel as well so the club knows about this relationship of course because they're both members of this but um they kind of got the impression that Elsa's relationship with her husband was very brother and sister. They thought, okay, they're, they're together because they have a business and because they have children, they still obviously care about each other, but they didn't really think, they maybe even thought maybe he knows, maybe he knows about this, maybe that's just the kind of arrangement um, that they have. <clears throat> so um, she, since, since she started the affair with Marcel, rather than stay at the club, she actually stays over at his place because he lives 
I think, the closest out of all of them. So she stays at his apartment um, from, like, Saturday until Sunday most weekends. So, um, but yeah, it is assumed that Jan didn't know about the affair, so that she was kind of living a little bit of a double life. And she told someone um, else from the club that she was very happy with Jan. And she was very happy with Marcel, which, of course is fine if you know of course there's people who have multiple relationships which i think is absolutely fine if every party is kind of aware of that but yeah we're assuming here that Jan was not aware of this else is also a very experienced jumper so she has almost three thousand jumps to her name which is very impressive so then one day somebody else joins the club like i said another woman called else but to avoid confusion she gets the nickname babs so that's how we will call her going forward so babs is 21 which is of course a lot younger than else and marcel because marcel is in his 40s i think or around 40 no 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 so (laughs) so babs um What we know about her is that she had a very troubled childhood. Her dad died when she was very young and she had a lot of her and her mom didn't really get along that much. Um, She suffered from depression. And then at quite a young age, she was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So she, yeah, she, she has kind of had a history with depression and she finds this new hobby because she had issues remake, keeping friendships and everything as well. So when, when she finds this new hobby, she really likes it. Like I said, she's only 21. Um, her and Else become good friends and they're on the phone a lot. And she really has, she really starts having friendships in that club. So then um, in 2005, there is a period of time where Else, VD, is at the club less frequently because she's injured. So she can't join for a little bit. And during that time, Marcel starts training Babs a little bit. So then a relationship between them starts as well. There was a bit of an arrangement where Marcel was like, okay, he apparently was very clear about, okay, else is my priority. And I will, she gets the weekends. So Saturday and Sunday it are for her. But on other days, mainly Fridays, we can hang out. Um, yeah. So the arrangement was basically that Babs would go over there on Friday, stay over, and then else would go there the next day and stay until Sunday. So Babs knew what she was getting into. Um Of course, Else was not aware of this. So she didn't know that her friend was also having an affair with Marcel. But then again, she was married as well. So it's it's a very, it's, you know, it's an odd love triangle. Um, But also, yeah, we we can't forget that Babs was 21 years old, which is a very, an age where you're very, I don't know, easily influenced or whatever. And also what we know about her as well is that she has big self-esteem issues so she's kind of always had this feeling of like that she's not really worthy of love and then Marcel is an older man so yeah and they're all members of this club which can be a little bit of a of a pressure cooker (laughs) putting all of them together yeah so then we go to the 10th of November 2006 so 
a week before what happened happened, but we'll get to that. So a week before, um, this was a Friday. So Babs goes to Marcel's place, as was the agreement between them that Fridays were her days. And all of a sudden, Elle's VD shows up as well, which of course is a little bit awkward for everyone involved <laughs> because we're assuming that she doesn't know. Um, but of course, Babs knows. So Babs is kind of at like Marcel was very clear about this. Else is his number one lover. So Babs kind of gets sent, she gets sent to the to the other room, to like the guest room, while Marcel and Else have sex in the bedroom and apparently they were quite loud <laughs> so so there must be I mean I'm just asking the question here like else arriving there and seeing her friend who also like lives quite far away so it's not like they just were hanging out or something you know you have to actively drive to that club for quite a while <laughs> so they're hanging out she must have kind of been like what is going on here you know this must have been very awkward I don't know. There just had to have been some tension, I think. But so Elle sleep, um, Babs sleeps in the other room, and she says that she kind of accepted her fate. She knew, she knew this. She knew that she was second place. She was fine with that. So the plan was, um, they were supposed to go jumping the next day, so that Saturday, but the weather was too bad, so they end up not going. They do go the next weekend, so that's the eighteenth of November two thousand and six. So that is um, a Saturday. And so Baps, Els, Marcel, and an unfortunate four person, fourth person get on this plane together. So there's just one person who's completely oblivious to all of this. Or, well, he kind of knows probably, but also doesn't isn't really involved in this, is in that on that plane with them. When they jump, um, I think Baps misses the cue, so she jumps later so the other three jump first and then what they do is they do this kind of formation in the air where they you know like make a star or whatever you know they do something um and so Marcel that fourth person and else VD they jump together and basically they see that else is trying to open her parachute she's trying to open her backup parachute and nothing's happening. So she's trying very hard to open it. There's also, she has a GoPro, so everything is filmed. So you can like see where she's looking. So you can see her look like up and try. So she's making very wide like arm gestures and everything. So she's actively trying to open it. But to no avail, it doesn't open. And she crashes in someone's garden. Which can I just say, if you and they actually the people who live there are like in are in that documentary, and this man was like, Yeah, my wife heard a bang and then she saw a leg. So we knew it probably wasn't good. Can you just imagine somebody landing in your garden like that? I think when I was younger, that wasn't bad at all. But like there was a paraglider and he was just landing in the street, like normal. He wanted to land. That was fine. That was so exciting. But then imagine like you just sit there and you hear bang and there's a mush of a person in your garden. And also being else, like the dread you must feel, because how long's the fall? Two minutes, maybe? Three minutes? I don't know. Well, that is actually not clear, but she did fall from 4,000 meters, which is unbelievable. That is so much 
there's so much time where you realize I am going to die now. Yeah, because she was actively. So one thing that was very clear is it was not suicide because you, she was actively trying until the very last second to save herself. Um, also, this was at a speed of around 200 kilometers or 125 miles an hour that she crashed. So actually, she wasn't visibly injured. So like her body looked fine but the fall did kill her immediately so i mean i have no idea. so her head wasn't because i would imagine everything just to burst open but that didn't happen it was all inside okay. yeah apparently apparently there wasn't it wasn't really visible from the outside or anything um but yeah an ambulance was called of course but they were too late um and then an expert was called immediately as well and this is the person who's in the documentary as well, I think, who does the annual checks of the parachutes, which I think checking the parachutes only once a year, I don't know, like a lot can happen. A lot can get like worn or you know, different strings. Like, what I, if want, they just... I will want that checked every time before I jump. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, from what I understood, it's like an annual check. So, okay, never mind. Um, so, so this expert... He gets there and he immediately says, okay, this parachute has been sabotaged. So basically two things happened here. So there's a harness that she wears, um, which of course the parachute is kind of like a like a big wing almost, you know. So then there's like um I think four different strings that attach the parachute to the harness. One of those had been cut. But then there was a little bit of discussion around if maybe the medics did that, but they say, no, we did not touch anything. Um, but the bigger thing here is that there is one very important part missing, and this is called the pilot chute. And without getting too technical, basically what happens is if you jump, um, there's, of course, the big parachute. But what you do is you take the smaller one out and you kind of throw that in the air so then there's like a small like a small little parachute and then that catches wind and then that is attached to the big parachute so then that will open but that had been cut off and it was missing so basically if there's no pilot chute there's no way that big one can open what's also very um i don't know it, eerie in a way is that she did not make any noise during this so she was just saving all of her energy to try and like save herself there's nothing there's no screaming nothing so immediately the big part here becomes okay where did that pilot shoot go and people the police actually ask people to check their trees and their their roofs and everything <laughs> they said they put like a, a letter in people's mailbox that's like see if you can find like a red small piece of fabric because it's really important and everything immediately a murder investigation is opened and so the question becomes who did this because the murderer needs three things in this case they need a motive they need the knowledge how to sabotage a parachute and they need the opportunity but of course in this story that could be basically anyone. So the first one people, well, the police look at, which is, I think, standard, is the husband. So they look at Yum because maybe he found out about the affair. He, of course, used to be a member of the club as well. So he has the knowledge of parachutes. 
he is interrogated, I think, only once and kind of immediately believed. He just seems very genuine. He seems distraught. He tells them that he has, they kind of start asking indirect questions um, and it becomes clear that he has no idea about the affair. Young does tell them that there, there was a letter. So at some point they received a letter, an anonymous letter, that said that Else needed to tell the truth about something. So he did ask her about this, but she had a little bit of, she had some issues with family members and everything. So she's like, yeah, they just don't want us to live our lives. They just want to, I don't know, harm us or whatever. So that was kind of the end of that. So he just believed that and that was it. So then they look at the lover, Marcel. So again, they interrogate him and everything, but it becomes very clear that he really loved her, that he really, really cared for her. And also the police say that he had absolutely no reason because if he didn't want her anymore, he could have just ended it. But then what they do is they check his phone activity and that's how they find out about the other woman, Daps. So she is actually interrogated a couple of times and there's a few things that don't exactly make her look good. So the first big important thing is that she is the one who ends up finding that pilot shoot. So she at some point goes to the police herself and she says that she found it in a tree. Now this tree, and you can see it in the documentary as well, it's a very, it's high, it's a very high tree. And this is of course kind of like a tiny thing. And she says that she was driving um, which people find it difficult to believe that you just see that in a tree that high when you're driving and focusing on the road because the weather wasn't the best. It's a road that's always very busy. So another member of the club also says that he took that same drive and to kind of check. And he's like, yeah, you would have to look up in a very uncomfortable way. Nobody really does that when they're driving and focusing on the road. So it's also interesting that she alerts the police to this, even though she maybe knows that in the position that she's in as like the other woman, it maybe doesn't make her look good if she goes to the police to say that she now also found this. But she still does that. She still goes there and she actively works with them. Um, so to explain this, she says that she got lost in that area because there were roadworks and things like that. But then it turns out that it's an area that they go to all the time because there's like like a chips place, <laughs> very Flemish, um, that they went to basically every weekend. So she knows that area very well. I mean, they say that, but then me, literally, if I have my the road that I always take and there's roadworks, I'm absolutely lost. Like I... <laughs> I have zero orientation. <laughs> so I don't have that feeling of like, oh yeah, but I can just go here and here and here and get to the same point. No, I'm lost. So they say that, I don't know. I think it's possible that you get lost in an area that you know very well. <laughs> but what is also remarkable is that people report that she left the club very early that day. And then there's kind of like a three to four hour gap between her leaving the club and her finding the pilot shoot. So the question becomes, did she go look for it? Okay. So then the second thing is the letter. So but Babs gets asked about this, but she says that it wasn't her. But then after a while, she kind of 
regrets that. And the way I understand it is she kind of contacts the police again herself because she's like, yeah, I kind of, this, it doesn't really sit well with me because I lied about something. And she says that she did write the letter to the family. Now, we have to keep in mind here that this woman was 21 years old. So everything is very dramatic and everything is very exaggerated. And her friends also say, yeah, we did talk about this you know we talk and you know like you're 21 <laughs> you're a student because she was a student she was doing a teaching degree um and you know you tell your friends like okay I'm dating this older man but actually my friend is dating him as well you know how that goes I mean I've never been in that position personally but I can imagine and then the friends being like oh well you know he should be he should be yours just I don't know maybe just send send a letter to the husband or something everything is very dramatic and exaggerated so we do have to keep her age into account here i think then she gets taken to the police station and she at some point gets questioned from 7 p.m until 5 a.m without a lawyer presence which as we know people that that will kind of break some people or people will say things to just leave um, or you start doubting yourself even, but she says nothing. She still says, no, it wasn't me. Then another thing that they found out was that she, at some point she went to America and what happened there was she went there. It was kind of like a convention, like a parachute convention thing. And um, she met this guy there. They slept together but then he kind of dumped her or he acted like it hadn't happened, like he didn't really want anything with her. And then apparently at some point they all got drunk and then she was driving a car, but like kind of where the planes are parked as well. She was driving a car. The guy was on the roof of that, sitting on the roof of that car. Um, and she apparently all of a sudden started driving very fast and like hit the wing of the plane. So that is considered kind of her being angry about about feeling rejected um so that is something that they find find out and that they think is very interesting before one of her interrogate interrogations as well she overdosed and she was actually taken to hospital um people are not 100 sure if she tried to commit suicide or if this was a cry for attention but she did take a lot a lot of medication um she had written a letter for her mum and in that letter she says that she just cannot deal with the realization that even if the murderer is found her friend is still gone but she also says in that letter that it was not her she says it's not me i hope the person who did this gets caught and the police see this as a very clear sign that she has done it and that she just can't live with that so actually from that point on Baps becomes the perfect person in the eyes of the police. She has the motive, the knowledge, and the opportunity because their story becomes that she did it that weekend before in Marcel's apartment when she was staying in the guest room. Also, at some point, Marcel's scissors then are confiscated because they think that that might be the murder weapon, but then it's only tested a year later. So this is... Th this is what they they think is the murder weapon but then nobody does anything with it for a year <laughs> um but then when it gets tested nothing was found maybe also because it just wasn't kept properly or whatever um 
But yeah, nothing is found. No fibers from the parachutes, no DNA, nothing. She, throughout all of this, remains very calm. And when the police, even at some point, they allude to the fact that they have found DNA, her DNA on the parachute, she remains super calm and she says, yeah, of course you found DNA. We help each other. We're a parachute club. We touch each other's parachutes all the time. Um, Actually, they didn't find any DNA. So that's the thing because... I know that in some, I know that in the US, for example, the police are allowed to lie to get a confession. I did not know that was the case in Belgium as well. I'm actually not sure if it is. That's something that I I need to look up. But yeah, they found, what they did find was male DNA on the parachute, but this was never investigated. So it kind of becomes a thing where many people say there's, from that point on, there's a massive, there's a tunnel vision and the police kind of just make her the perfect murderer because she fits the story. So then the trial starts in 2010. (laughs) So that's four years later, (laughs) which is very Belgian. Um, So in the meantime, Babs was in prison for about a year initially, um, but then she was let go. So in the meantime, so they were like, okay, until this trial starts, you can you can go. You're free. Maybe maybe with some conditions or something. I'm not sure, but she was let go. So she actually finishes her studies. She does an internship um, as a teacher, and everyone is extremely impressed with her because she puts a lot of time and energy into the children who have difficulties and everything. And she really she's really a good a good teacher, and everyone is really happy with her. And the school actually tells her, okay, when you get cleared of everything you can start right away you have a job here so yeah she just makes a really good impression there then what happens as well is that she gets investigated by psychiatrists um this is something that people yeah that they they do in cases like this to check if a person can be held accountable for their actions or not um but these psychiatrists can also be hired by both sides. And as people who have listened to or watched many true crime cases will know, you can make these people say almost anything. So the psychiatrists from the victim's side, um, they say that she clearly is very egocentric, that she's a narcissist, that she's a massive manipulator. But then the ones on her side they don't see any signs of that. They say, no, this is... Also, her IQ is very high. So she's, yeah, she's above average intelligent. Um, So there's clashing opinions um, about this. But of course, with her history of depression and everything, she does have that perfect profile again. So the lawyers in this case are Jeff (laughs) Vermossen. And Vic von Alst. And so these people, these are very famous lawyers, both of them. Apparently, um, especially Jeffrey Massa, he's 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 almost well, he's a public figure. And every time there's a very high high profile murder case, he does the victim's side. Um, and he he loves the camera. <laughs> Jeff loves the media. So he's 76 now and he's still working. He's still going going for it. 
So like I said, he's the the victim's family's lawyer. So he says his whole thing is, okay, she's a manipulator. She doesn't have empathy. He focuses a lot on her role in this love triangle. Of course, she was jealous. Um, And then her finding the parachute and also her mental state or her history with mental illness gets dragged into this a lot as well. It's a murder case. So kind of similar to the UK, I think there's a jury of 12 members of the public who then decide what they think on their, they decide on their verdict. Um, but they need to have a clear reasoning. So they can't just be like, oh yeah, we we think this because that's just our feeling. Like they need to have a very clear reasoning and they need to give a motive. What's also interesting about this case is kind of the time. So this was 2010. So social media existed already but it was kind of it wasn't big like like it is now um what still was very big were newspapers and just the media on on the television this case was actually broadcast live on tv it was everywhere and uh the podcast the volkshiri they say that that was very typical for that time because that would never happen again today that would just not be done um also, newspapers did polls on this, which is <laughs> very morally questionable, I would say. So they did polls like, do you think she did it? Um, so this was a classic trial by media, I think. And she also says, which I, th- I thought was quite sad, um, they interview her right before she goes She goes in and she says, I just hope I get a serene and normal process and it hasn't been decided already by like the media, because it also did get international attention, even in Korea and everything they reported on this case. Yeah, because this was, this is just very intriguing. You know, this is very, a very juicy case. Um, Then also what I, what I thought was just brilliant was um, Elsa's makeup bag has gone missing. So the family, they want it back because it's something that she used a lot. It's something that they associate with her. They want it back. Jeffrey Musser, the lawyer, he says that Babs has this. He's like, yeah, she has this. She kept it as some kind of trophy. Then, and you cannot make this up, the jury, so these 12 people, start going through some bags with evidence and everything. And this random person ends up finding this makeup bag but a lot of this trial is like riding on that makeup bag (laughs) so they let people know and they're like okay does this mean we need to do this again or what is this but they kind of keep it quiet they they keep it quiet for the media um the lawyers do get informed but they decide to just continue with the trial so also they they drive so they all have to go on this bus and they drive to the club with like the jury in it, with the lawyers in it, all of them. They 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 ride in kind of like this travel bus, like a very bright orangey bus. <laughs> they drive to that club to because the lawyers want to show things, you know, like, okay, is it possible that the parachute could have been sabotaged at the club? Some people say no, because somebody always would have seen but then other people say well Elsa's um Baxter's side say no it's very possible that someone else could have done it so yeah they take everyone on a day trip to that club um then after about four or five hours the jury reaches their unanimous verdict and they say that Babs is guilty 
and she gets sentenced also because she never she she keeps saying she's innocent and everything um so we know the sentence will be quite high and it is high it's 30 years in prison but there is a law in belgium the the law of lejeune which means that you can get get out after one third of your sentence you're eligible for parole so she was actually released in june 2022 under strict conditions and supervision so she does have a job now and everything but i think um so in total she was in prison for 12 and a half year half years i think and so she basically she can go to work but then it's kind of you know estimated how long it takes her to get home and then she can't leave her house after that time and she can't i think she can't go it she can't go to the province of antwerp where the family live or so it's it's apparently these are very classic conditions when a person is released after a while so yeah that was the case do you have initial <laughs> reactions i'm just so confused like is it's like is she really guilty or was it marcel after all he just really got away with it so this, yeah, so this is the main thing because also there was public, a lot, of, there was public divide. Um, people thought, some people thought that she was also, yeah, the jury was unanimous. So all 12 people thought, okay, she did it. But of course, the main thing here, there is no proof. And so the, the there's public- There's no direct evidence. Like there's, there's no, it's... nothing. And so the public- really did not like they they there were protests and everything because there were facebook groups that were like she's innocent um then of course they all blamed the lawyer so Jeffrey got quite a bit of shit as well his family got death threats which which i mean these people are doing their jobs you know it's you know <laughs> um so i don't really think that they should be blamed but yeah, it, the thing is, I mean, she has the perfect profile, right? She has the motive, of course, jealousy, the knowledge how to do it, the mental health history. This feels very like, well, she could have done it and it would make the most sense for her to have done it. So let's say that she did it. <laughs> because this whole story is kind of built on the assumption, really, that she lost it that weekend that they the three of them were in that apartment and that they were very that she was very upset which of course is a reasonable assumption because most people would probably be upset if all of a sudden they're like banned to the guest room because the other woman shows up but there's nothing that shows she was upset nobody can prove that she actually was upset maybe she had actually accepted this maybe she did have very low self-esteem so maybe in her mind it was like yeah of course I'm second place like that yeah that's that's just what it is that's that's just that's just it um I I mean I completely understand that LVD's family wants to blame someone because she's the obvious choice um but there are other options as well of course I mean yeah there is Marcel they had a, an affair for about five years I think so that might be something or the parachute was actually at her family's house most days. So the husband was only interrogated once. And so the, the main thing here is, which I think is very interesting um, and very controversial, <laughs> is that um, the lawyer, Jeffrey Masso, he says that you don't need 
proof because in many cases you don't have proof in cases like sexual assaults or whatever you don't always have proof which okay makes sense um and it can be very difficult of course if the rule is like oh you always need undeniable evidence then yeah in in things like sexual assault cases then that means that nobody would ever be punished for, for something like that because it's almost never possible to really prove that um so it becomes a question of like, okay, are you more certain than not? But then I kind of have an issue with the thing of like, oh, if everything points in one direction, then that has to be it because that's just very scary. Because if that becomes the standard, then it's like, okay, so is it enough to just be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Exactly. And also a story can be spun a certain way. Like if this just seems the most logic to you, then that's how it is. And it, like you can see it with the Central Park Five. They were just, the story was just spun in a way yeah. that it made sense to the public, made sense to the investigators, and they lost the biggest parts of their lives of in course. prison. Of course. And what and what makes and what makes sense to the public, you know, in, in, in a society that's very racist, yeah, then that will make the most sense to the public that it's the five black kids. Like that is just and very it's the same with with Babs, like Babsy, Babsy, how you call him? Babsy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I should have said her full name probably. So her first name is also Else. Her second name is Clotamans. Else Clotamans. That's her real name. But yeah, I think that would have been a bit too confusing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But like, it seems like they used her mental illness as an excuse. They used the bias that exists about mental illness. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she has done it. I mean, if you just think about, ooh, but she could have been jealous and all those things. Sure, she could have, might as well have done it. I don't know. I'm not taking any of sides course. here. I'm just saying no. it's very scary to just decide around circumstantial evidence. And it's not yeah. even that big of, like, the circumstantial evidence here is not that massive. No, the only thing is just that she looks a little bit suspicious. That's, that's yeah. kind of it. Um, yeah, I mean, if I she's done it, she went to prison for 12 years and she see, her life doesn't seem to be easy. And if she didn't do it, at least she's out of prison. I know. It. I mean, yes, the thing is, if you would ask me, okay, who's your main suspect, it would be her as well. But I don't think that's enough to lock someone up and in that way it's very similar to quite a very famous american case the staircase murder with michael and kathleen peterson where if you don't know it basically kathleen peterson dies one night because she falls down the stairs um her husband michael is there as well then it becomes a whole thing because apparently someone else he knew also years years ago also died by falling down the stairs another woman um and he went to prison for i think 8 years as well was then released because he because he got a retrial um and you know i watched quite a few documentaries on that and everything and then i have this <laughs> this feeling where i'm like I am 100% convinced that this man did it, 100% convinced. But I don't think he should have been convicted because there is nothing against him. Everything looks very suspicious. There's a shit ton of blood in that hallway, which is weird if you just fall down the stairs. Um, and then there's the owl, owl theory that basically an owl flew in, injured her, and that's why she fell. Um, 
which apparently isn't even that weird because there were accidents with owls in that area. I don't know. It's wild. Honestly, watch these documentaries. <laughs> but I'm like, this guy, it, it, there's, it's just too much coincidence. He has to have done it. But I don't think that's enough to lock someone up. Coincidence is not enough i think because what if this man really did not do it you know what if he's just the most unlucky unluckiest guy on the planet and that is what happened but then also with him i don't know the circumstantial evidence is quite extreme in that case that's what i mean the difference between his circum i mean maybe i just don't know enough about your case but the circumstantial evidence with that guy is so intense. Like, even in the autopsy, I think people said that that woman who fell down the stairs, it seems like someone has hit her head more than... Mm. And then there's the murder weapon down. that they're like, they, they lost it, and then that shows up in the garage after a couple of weeks all of a sudden. It's just there. Like, there's, yeah. there's things that are very sus, definitely. Yeah. But, well... Thank you for doing all that research. I think you did really well, like a real true crime, true crime podcaster. Well oh, done. Thank you. Okay. I feel pressured I do, now. <laughs> I do, well, I'm sure you will be wonderful as well. I do have a question though. Would you want to be in a jury? Because I'm always like, yes. Oh my god, I would love this if it's like an interesting case. But actually, that responsibility. No. I mean, yeah. No, I don't like. I going back to my puppy, but. There are other families that are going to pick up a dog, and I don't know them. They will be lovely, I'm sure. But I was like, what if I picked a dog that one like what if because I picked that dog, another dog has gonna is gonna have a really bad home or like a weird home, a home where it's not good for that dog? And then Aww. I was like, literally saying, I could never be in a jury because I'm already struggling with this. How am I meant to decide if someone is gonna spend the rest of his life or her life in prison? No, I would be, I would make that process very hard for everyone. It would go on forever because I will be forever that person in the jury that is like, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Which, by the way, this is, this is very random and not true crime related, but there's a new show on Amazon. Uh, a friend of mine recommended it to me. Shout out, Sarah. Um, it is called. I think just a jury. Um, it's by the makers of The Office. <laughs> and basically, it's a great concept. So it's a whole, it's a jury out of 12. Um, everyone's an actor. It's the same concept of like, this is a documentary, we interview you, like, you know, like in The Office. But one person doesn't know it's fake. So he's just a real guy who thinks he's part of a jury. But the things that happen around him are random. It's very funny. It's like a hidden camera kind of vibe almost. It's amazing. I haven't finished it yet. I have a few episodes to go. Oh my but God. It's hilarious. And one of the people, it's in LA. It's set in LA. Um, one of the people who is in the jury is a famous actor. I actually forget his name again. He's like in the movie Enchanted. Oh my God. He's in so much more movies than that. <laughs> he's more famous for. He's in Sonic. They actually talk about that as well. Is he's a really it- famous actor. Not, not Patrick Dempsey. The other one, no, James, no. Ma- the other James, one. Mars- James Marsden or something? Is that him? Oh, yeah. James Marsden. Yeah, it's him. It's him. And he's playing himself, but he's playing like himself as being a real asshole. So everyone knows he's an actor. He's just... It's hilarious. I recommend it. Anyway, yeah. just lighting up the mood a little bit. <laughs> also, I... Well, this is... Yeah, I have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> because you recommended Fall of the House of Usher and we started watching the first episode yesterday 
what the fuck do you mean it's not scary? Both of us were just, we were terrified that first episode. <laughs> what? I think what? I just have a different level of what scares me nowadays. <laughs> I was so scared. <laughs> oh, God. I am sorry. What happens in the first episode? I already forgot that part. Well, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like, you know, with the family and the mum. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, that's a bit creepy, Jesus. maybe. Oh, my God. That was bad. <laughs> but it's very, oh, my God, I love it. I'm so intrigued. How's 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 Kyron dealing with it? Is he okay? Yes, <laughs> he was a bit shaken up as well. But we used we, to it. Yeah, but we're we're both very intrigued now, so we definitely want to finish it. I like it. Well, you need to you need to let me know how you find it in the end. And here's your okay. warning to everyone who follow my recommendation but hasn't watched it yet. It may be a bit little bit scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, but speaking of scary, let's move on to the second case of today's episode. I'm just going to give some trigger warnings because I knew the case. I've listened to it. Red Hendon has a really good episode where they did a lot of research on it. Um, the trigger warning I want to give is, well, just general violence. Um, it's gory and there is sexual abuse happening. It is a wild one. Maybe don't eat anything while you listen to this um i based most of my research also on a documentary because well i will let you know towards the end because i don't want to give any spoilers if you don't know the case but based it on a documentary and lots of articles i found online but honestly i don't even want to give too much away these were the trigger warnings let's just get right into it so this is the case of ellison bota and we're going back into the year of 1994 and we're going to South Africa. It was the 18th of December of 1994 and Alison had a perfect summer's day. Um, she spent it on the beach with friends and after the, a day on the beach they all headed back to her place, they had some pizza, they played some games and it was just a general wholesome but also ordinary day and evening with friends. At the end of the evening she gave one of her friends a ride home just being nice and also south africa is not really the safest place to be i mean i've only heard things from red-handed before they did a case in south africa and hannah goes there quite a lot and yeah it just it just sounds a bit more dangerous than other places yeah i i knew someone who went on like an exchange program there and she stayed with this family and she was like yeah everyone just has a gun in their purse and yeah Shops have to be in like shopping centers because you don't just have shops on the street because that's too dangerous. And then also, there's that couple, Roland and Tiffany, on 90 Day Fiance, and they oh go God, look at yeah. houses and they all have like, they all have. You need gated communities to live very safely. Yeah, it, it, it's a wild, it's it's wild. It's, <laughs> it probably wild. So, it's probably some regions, but yeah. <laughs> You're apparently also not meant to really at night stop at a red traffic light because oh, okay. someone might just rob you in your car but yeah anyway so like i said she gave one of her friends a ride home and when she got back to her place her usual parking spot was now taken which meant that she had to park a bit further down the road instead so before she even had a chance to get out of her car 
there was a knife at her throat and she heard a male voice threatening her saying, move over or else I'll kill you. That guy then entered the car and took over the driver's seat and Allison now moved onto the passenger seat. He did then tell her that he didn't want to hurt her and he just wanted to use the car for an hour or so. And she really wanted to believe in the good and just hoped that he was speaking the truth. So they were driving around. Um, and during the drive, he told her his name was Clinton. He asked her if she has a boyfriend. They started small talk. Um, and that was, in a way, a problem for Allison because with that small talk, if you want to call it that, it gave Allison a quite false sense of security. That is not as bad as it seems, but that sense of security was taken away quite quickly because a bit later, the cl guy who called himself Clinton stopped the car, pulled over, and then a uh, second big bad wolf um, enters the car. He comes and sits on the back seat. They obviously know each other. And in the documentary, uh, it was described that Allison caught the guy's eyes in the rearview mirror and that was when her relief turned into sheer fear because all she saw was that cold evil. At that moment, Allison realized that she would not make it back home. So they kept driving. They drove past the last streetlights and the last remainder of hope and into just darkness. And then they stopped and they stopped in an alcove. I didn't know what an alcove is, but I googled it. So an alcove is a large arched recession formed into a cliff wall. So like a little cave in a cliff wall. Yeah. So after stopping the car in the middle of nowhere, one of the guys just asked her, are you going to fight? I mean, what a question. But yeah, I don't actually want to go into too much detail of all the horrible things that happened. But if you want to know more, like I said, listen to Red Handed or watch the documentary, which we will link in the description box. Or if we can't link, we're at least going to mention the name. The documentary is called Allison. You can watch it on Amazon um, for free, actually, with some adverts in between. Anyway, what happened then after they asked her, are you going to fight? Um, they forced her into oral sex. They raped her. They said the most disgusting things to her. And yeah, it was just... The worst things you can imagine happened. So the two guys were actually, one guy was actually not called Clinton, the one who introduced himself as Clinton. His name was actually Fr Franz, not um, not Clinton. And the other guy's name was Tins. She found that out because the guy who was Clinton was raping her. And after he was done raping her, um, or yeah, Tins screamed the name Franz, Franz, and ran over. Um, so after Franz was done, it was Tins go. And at some point he put his hands around her throat and started stabbing her in the abdomen um, and in the pubic area about 37 times. That's what medics what? and doctors say, yeah, happened. Then Tins was also the first to cut her throat, but then Franz pushed him out of the way and cut her throat another 16 times. What? And then the two monsters drove off. So Alison, and I guess at this point I can actually say that she is miraculously still alive because she's talking in the documentary I watched. Alison said she couldn't feel any pain but she could hear her breathing through her severed, severed windpipe and it was horrifying 
and it dawned on her at that point that she was injured beyond any hope and she realized that she was dying. Uh, she then says in the documentary, she could feel herself leaving her body. Like she literally left her body and she was looking down on herself lying on the floor. And when she looked down at her body, she felt distant to herself, but not quite far enough away to not go back. And then she realized she had a choice to go back and she did. She said she went back into her body. So yeah, her first thought was that she had to make sure that those two monsters will never, ever get a chance to do anything like this to anyone again. So her first act was to write the, ni- the names of the two guys into the dirt of her floor, off the floor with her finger. So she wrote friends and tins. And after that, beneath their names, she wrote, I love mom. After writing the names and the message to her mom in the sand, um, she noticed something wet on her leg. And that is when she realized that her intestines were outside her body. But she somehow still was mentally capable enough to think of grabbing the denim shirt that was just lying right next to her on the ground and she used it to hold her intestines in with the shirt in one hand and then she started crawling on the floor with the help of the other hand. She felt that she was getting weaker and hence she needed to move faster and her whole motivation was she didn't want her mom to have so many unanswered questions about her death. So she had to give it her all. So the crawling wasn't getting her anywhere and she decided to get up. She had to get up and somehow she managed to actually hoist herself up onto her feet. But as soon as she got up, everything went black. She couldn't see anything but darkness. And at some point she realized she isn't seeing this darkness because she was about to faint or black out. The darkness that she saw was the night sky because her head actually flopped backwards. Shut up. <laughs> we all taking a gonna we all gonna take a little breather here because this was the part where I was like, fucking hell. How on earth? I mean whew. how how is how is this woman alive? I'm oh my god, I'm baffled. I mean her neck was cut 17 times, but in the documentary, uh they mentioned that they cut her muscle but somehow Ooh. missed every important vein that is needed to survive. Yes, okay. So it didn't stop her. Um, she just took the other hand that wasn't holding in her intestines to literally pull her head up so she could see and she hold it up like that so she could walk. Because with all her power, she managed to get from that alcove to the nearest road And that is where she just fell down in the middle of the street. And she was just hoping that a car would come by, by, but she was also hoping that it's not going to be those two coming back to check or do anything else. So there was one car coming. It slowed down a little bit and then just sped off, just drove past. But then after that car, there was a second car that came by and thank God for that car because it was a 20-year-old guy and his friends. They found Allison full of blood, full with blood and with no clothes on. 
And this was 1994, but she was luck. They were lucky because one of the friends had a cell phone, and having a cell phone back then wasn't a common thing. But they used a cell phone, obviously, to call an ambulance. And want the 20 year old guy who was driving the car, he was with her the whole time. He held her hands. He was just waiting with her. It took the ambulance 40 minutes to get to them, which is an insanely a long amount of time. Uh, but I guess they were in the middle of nowhere, and then. Once they were in the ambulance, it was a 30-kilometer drive to get to the hospital. That guy who found her was with her the whole time. And it's actually really touching because he was a 20-something-year-old guy and he didn't really know what to do with his life. But that night, he decided to become a doctor, and he did. Oh, oh that's so great. Yeah, It gives me goosebumps, really. Yeah. The whole story is just a big goosebump moment. But um, also how incredibly traumatic. And it's that thing where you're like would you stop because of course you always want to be that person who's like oh I would 100% pull over but if I was in a car by myself I mean now of course you would yeah. just call yeah. an ambulance you would maybe drive but, off nearby and call yeah help. But it's like would would you pick someone up and it happens in a lot of cases right where it's like a person covered in blood and screaming and like would you pick them up if you were by yourself yeah I don't know I don't know anyway it's a difficult one <laughs> But yeah, finally, after 30 kilometers of driving, Alison arrived at the hospital in a condition no one can imagine. She had been disemboweled, her head had, her neck had 17 cuts from ear to ear. And again, if you're interested in all the medical information, the doctors and some medics are going into detail in the documentation. It's really interesting, but also in some way, the doctors are just saying it's a miracle because her intestines were full of dirt and sand and clay and they literally had to clean everything before it actually could go back in the doctor who did this gives an interview in the documentary it's just shocking and fascinating at the same time but yeah so she, she had surgery and she went to icu like to the intensive care station and then the investigation begins and so Thanks to Alison being the fighter she is and remembering everything, the attackers were actually easily found by the police. It also turned out they weren't strangers to the police because there have been some rapes before. But there was one police officer who was assigned a case and he came to see Alison and he gave her a folder with like pictures of possible suspects, several men, um, and Franz and Tins were in there and she pointed them out immediately and they got invited to the police station. The thing was, though, with the prosecution, they were like, it's good that she pointed them out, but it would be a clearer case if she could just say their names. But now you have to think, she had ropes, like tubes down her throat. She needed air. She needed to be ventilated. Everything has been just, like, her speaking area was cut so they had to fix it um but she didn't even she didn't even consider not taking those tubes out she was like take those tubes out and she managed to say the names of those two obviously friends and teens did not expect her to survive this um so once they were what's the word questioned they just pled guilty because they were like obviously everything will come out and yeah the charges that they played guilty to were eight charges. They included kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder. And they were both found guilty and sentenced to life in prison in August 1995. The judge is also in the documentary. And in the interview, he said that if the death penalty would have still been active in South Africa, he would have considered it. And yeah, even though 
the worst was behind Alison. She obviously still suffers, um, suffered from physical and emotional scars from all of this. And in order to recover, though, like she fell in a deep depression, obviously. This is something you can't even imagine going through. Nothing meant anything to her anymore. Then she got invited the first time to give a speech and talk to other victims and survivors. I actually want to call them. Um, of things like similar situations and rape and yeah she decided that she need to face what happened to her and she began traveling around the world she told her story in at least 35 countries she was one of the first women from south africa to speak publicly about rape both in her home country and abroad and she just inspired other survivors and still inspires other survivors to come forward and tell their stories as well but Alison says one of the greatest gifts of all has been the birth of her two sons because during her attack, that guy specifically tried to destroy her reproductive organs. She was not meant to ever actually be able to get pregnant, but she gave birth to her first child in 2003 and she also had a second son, which just makes, yeah, it just makes the whole thing of having the option to have children for her even more positive. And... Yeah, today her story stands as both of an example of human depravity, but also the strength of the human spirit. I mean, I'm just imagining, I mean, I can't even imagine, but like, I feel like I would be the person of like, I'm just going to lie here and die. I don't know if I wouldn't actually <laughs> could even consider getting up when I realize my organs are out of my body. I know, I know. I know. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very difficult to say because my first thought you don't know. was, yeah. I, I can't stand blood like even my own blood if I cut my finger I faint <laughs> so yeah. my first thought was like I would just faint every single time I looked at myself um but then I don't know I think there is something it's just survival instinct that it takes yeah. over I think and it's difficult to it's difficult to predict if that will happen or if if you will how you will react in that moment but I am just absolutely floored by how clear this woman's mind is in that moment how she was thinking how how clear she was thinking I need to write down these names I need to yeah that that's that's unbelievable and it's exactly like you said I think that's the perfect way to describe this it shows like the worst but also the like the worst of humanity but then also how strong humans can be and then yeah Yeah. there are good people out there like these these guys who pulled over everything of course like they yeah because that's a risk as well because you don't know if these people are still out there somewhere or if they will see her get in or you know exactly exactly but yeah um just to give another insight of what kind of fucking walking garbage those two people those two monsters are um so Apparently, there were rapes before. They raped um, two women. One of them was pregnant. The pregnant one managed to go to the police and tell. And I think that's why they were, or at least Franz was in prison before. Um, Franz has a wife and a child, by the way. He had that wife and child before he did all those horrible things to Alison. Um, And then at some point, filmmakers asked for an interview with Franz while he was in prison. And he had demands. He wanted, first of all, his first demand was he wants a letter of forgiveness signed by Alison herself. And then he wanted, and this is just, I mean, I don't even know. He wanted the profit shares from Alison's book sales and motivational speaking visits because he believes that what he did is the reason for her success story. Um, 
okay. I, I mean, I, yeah. I have nothing, nothing to say to this. <laughs> no, mm-mm. but of course that request was denied. Um, but what infuriates me, cause I was Googling what's going on with them now. So according to a few articles I read from July this year, July, 2023, they are both no longer behind bars. And after almost three decades in prison, they've been let out for parole, apparently. Okay. How old are they? Are they like very old men or not? I don't know how old they were. They they didn't really say. The actors that reenact some of the scenes look like end of 20s, 30s. So I hope they are like... I mean, Alison is in her 50s now. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, that well, is the yeah, it doesn't matter that they still even have a couple of nice years. <laughs> it's not, I not, hope be, yeah. not that they have nice years. I hope they uh, live in the worst fucking sewage area that they can live in and <laughs> just suffering every day. This is just a, it's such a tragic story, but I find it so impressive that this woman managed to do everything she did and now travels and tells the story over and over and over again it's just wild what people can do honestly yeah this well this is shocking i get why this is the case that shocked you yeah yeah but yeah because when we you know when looking for like the cases that shocked us, of course both you and i listen to lots of true crime and then you know sometimes when I'm like out and about all day and I, I go for a big walk sometimes several episodes in a in a row and it's it's horrible to say but you do after a while become I don't know almost like desensitized to it oh you definitely um, do it's like Hannah and Sruti say that a lot in Red Handed and I know we keep talking about him but I'm sorry we're fan um <laughs> They do say when they do like Halloween specials that they try to find the most gruesome or worst cases they could find. But then they're like, oh, we are sorry because we don't know what's brutal anymore <laughs> because everything they, just seems yeah. wild at this point. I know. You don't know anymore. And you don't know what the the person who maybe doesn't listen to true crime a lot will find brutal. Um, but yeah, I think there's different because our cases are very different, of course. Like yours is very... Yeah brutal and and physical and graphic and everything whereas mine is more like a I think for me the reason why that is some like one that sticks or like that is still on my mind quite often is because it was the first like I was um and the women on the Volkuri (laughs) the Flemish podcast say this as well this was a very big case that we were actually old enough already to kind of to know that and like to know what, what was going on um because there's other big cases in Belgium, but I was just too young or I hadn't been born yet to really realize it. Um, but this was one, like I said, it was so all over the media and everything. And yeah, that this this was something where, like I said, this was such a the number one topic of conversation, I think, during that period was like it was like the, the thing that people would talk about when they went to to a bar, you know, um, and it did raise so many questions around. Okay, what? When is someone guilty, and when can you lock someone up? And so that's, I think, why I this is just something that stays with me. Just like, just like the staircase murder, just like all of those, because it's so like 
yeah, how... It's the fact that you never will know what actually really, really yes, happened exactly. in that situation with those cases. And it is scary. Why... It's just scary on different levels. It's the scariness of, can I just literally be, at, like you said, at the wrong time, at the wrong place at the wrong time, and I will be the suspect. You don't know. No, no. <sighs> People do horrible because something I I heard, I think it was on Red Hand. <laughs> As well, probably. Um, was this basically this woman um in America? She was Latin American. Um, and then she was an aunt, so she had nieces, um, and she was gay. And then this was, I don't know, I think in the 80s, maybe 90s, and then she had a couple of friends over, like a couple of women, and the children were staying at hers as well. But basically, the children's dad, so her sister's ex wanted to get with her but she had rejected him and he felt rejected so he basically put the children up to um testifying and telling the police that they had all sexually abused the children and they all all of these people went to prison for like 15 years or something because yeah they were gay women they were mexican it, it again it's that thing of well in the us but every everywhere where it's like yeah I, I bet they did it because of course like they're people of color and they're gay. Like and and, and it's and that, just an easy story to sell to the public yes, and, that, and to the media. And yeah. then as the children got older, they actually realized that none of that had happened. So then they really regretted it. And it's horrible for the children as well, because you must feel so guilty. But then um even these friends, and that was really something that was on my mind for a couple of days because I was like, Jesus Christ, all these women, like the friends, all they did was literally go over there for a glass of wine or something. And before you know it, you're in prison for 15 years. And that is the thing that scares me the most is like, you can literally be at the wrong place at the wrong time. I know. I'm so paranoid sometimes. And that is purely because I listen to true crime all the time. But sometimes I'm like, well, let's say I'm at yours. I like, I'm thinking, should I just take some random pictures of me doing random things for the next few until I know you have seen someone else? Because if anything will happen to you, I will be the last person who have seen you that day. And I never want to be in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And if the police were to check my browser history, I would be fucked. <laughs> Oh, the, the me too. And that can actually get you into prison. There's another true crime podcast. I've mentioned them before, Modav X. They have like their main true crime podcast, but then they did uh 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 what's it called? Uh investigative podcast where they looked into this one guy in Germany who is in prison still um because of circumstantial circumstantial evidence only and they are actually investigating if it's if he actually should not be in prison. And one of the Evi the circumstantial evidence thing is um was that his wife googled or he googled um what police dogs can smell or something something about the police dogs and the smelling um and obviously he googled i mean i would google that if someone would tell me something you got police dogs will come tomorrow and check everything i would just want to google because i'm like fuck i didn't do this but I once had a gun and they are sniffer dogs for like gunpowder. Will they still smell it? Like it's normal to Google this. But yeah, anyway, that's a whole other big story for all the ones who speak German. There are like several episodes on this. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's also so difficult to know like what's normal behavior and what isn't because that's a, a lot of the time as well when things are especially on TV or something that it's like, oh, but they don't react the way someone who's innocent would normally 
behave. And you just don't know how you would react. I mean, you might have a fight or flight reaction, but you might also just freeze and don't do anything. Like, you you, you don't know. You maybe cry or you maybe never talk again. Like, you don't know. And I don't think it should be analyzed on how people react in certain situations. No, and it's the same with, yeah, kind of with my case as well, where it's like, okay, it makes her look very bad that she's the one who finds that thing. And like, why does she go to the police? But then people say, well, if she did do it you would just stay away from the police but then maybe she did do it and she was like oh but if I actively go to the police then nobody will you know it's it so many people have so many different perceptions of this or I would oh I would yeah. never do this I, if I had done this I would do this so you just can't you just can't know you, <laughs> you just, just don't know. know in the end the answer is you don't know and don't take it as evidence or like it's with the 911 calls the 999 calls when the emergency yeah. calls go in and they're recorded and it's like but he, she wasn't crying. It's like, well, maybe she hasn't registered yet what really happened. <laughs> like, yeah. you just don't know. Oh, well. Wow. That was that was something today. <laughs> yes, I liked it. But it's a lot of work, I have to say. <laughs> These true crime podcasters. Ooh. Yeah. I have so much respect for the true crime podcasters because you also just want to be fair to the survivors or victims or, yeah. And it's it's uh, there's so much stuff out there. And also, when you research true crime cases, you need to be careful because sometimes you come across very scary pictures that you were not meant to see. Yeah. Well, I did enjoy this in a weird way, <laughs> in a yeah. sick and twisted way. So, um, yeah. yeah. Let us know if you liked this as well. Then yeah. maybe we can do it again. In a year's time. I need yeah, to cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For Halloween or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, we it like we said, this is like a Halloween special. It's not our usual program. We are back next week with um our actual theme that we started before Halloween, the shit I'm a woman theme. And we hope you couldn't relate to anything that we talked about today. And a happy Halloween because we are actually releasing this episode on Tuesday, not on Wednesday. Because Tuesday will be the 31st of October. Um, yeah. And do let us know if you like if you know of any cases that really shook you and yeah. Or any old whole- cases that still haunt you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. See you. Well, when is it? Next, next, Tuesday. next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> See you next Wednesday. <laughs> See you next Wednesday and yeah. Keep listening. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.